Well, at this time, the children can be dismissed to their classes where they will be taught the word. So as they walk out of the room, again, kids dismiss out the back, uh, down the aisle, out the back, meet your teacher along the way. Pray for them as they go to hear the proclamation of the word. And uh, one thing before we launch here again, uh, I just want to welcome you to Christ Community. If you're new with us for the very first time or fairly new with us, we just want to extend a, a grateful welcome to you. Again, you could be anywhere this morning, but you're here with us, and so we count it a real privilege to minister to you in any way that we can. Uh, our mission statement here at Christ Community is that we exist to prize, portray, and proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. Christ is the centerpiece of the scriptures and the plan of salvation, and we want him to be the centerpiece of this church also. And so we want to serve you in any way we can, help you, as we put it, live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission, and so we count it a privilege to serve you in any way we can. So welcome if you're uh, hanging out with us this morning. Uh, I want to begin um, by uh, asking you to remember that old TV show called The Twilight Zone. Anyone remember the, that show, The Twilight Zone? Um, I, I remember that show as a kid and just being terrified by that show. Um, why I was allowed to watch it, I'm not entirely sure, but uh, I, I remember the, the haunting creatures and the creepy music and the terrors of the unknown and the powers that lurk in the shadows. And the whole premise of the show, what made the show entertaining and scary all at the same time was, was that it suggested the possibility is that there is another dimension. There's this terrifying, unseen world beyond what is known to man, this dimension imperceptible to the senses. And, and this, this unseen world called the Twilight Zone actually contained within it the powers that secretly rule people's lives. That's a very terrifying thing. And in every episode, another person got a, a glimpse into this unseen world. And the whole point of the show, I don't know if you remember this, but the whole point of the show was, that the knack of the show was that it actually had some twist at the end that actually taught a valuable life lesson. It used terror to teach. It used the bizarre to educate. It used the fear of the unknown to teach us about what we do know so that we can better live lives of meaning and significance. It's actually a pretty moral show, except for everything else in it. <laughs> and you see, the reason why I'm telling you this is because in a very real sense, the book of Daniel is the twilight zone of the Bible. Think about it, haunting creatures, terrors of the unknown, secret powers that rule people's lives. That's called apocalyptic literature. In other words, books like Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Revelation reveal an unseen world, an unseen realm, imperceptible to the human senses. And get this, the whole point of apocalyptic literature, why it's there in your Bibles with all of its creepy, bizarre images is, is to transform your very lives. Like the Twilight Zone, it uses, it uses the terror to teach. It uses the bizarre to educate. It uses, uh, it's designed to teach us and train us to help us live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the glory of Christ. That is the book of Daniel. And so this morning, the twilight zone of Daniel chapter 2 is exactly where we're going. 
In chapter 2, as you remember, we get to the first major prophecy in the book of Daniel. And again, what makes this particular prophecy so intriguing is that it, A, comes in the form of a dream, B, comes in a dream to the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, and C, it is a prophecy about the end of history and how the world is going to end. Which means this prophecy isn't just relevant to Nebuchadnezzar, it is profoundly relevant to you. In fact, that's, that's the thing about the book of Daniel. You see, although it's filled with all sorts of bizarre, creepy imagery, it's got weird creatures and winged leopards and talking horns and monsters with metal teeth and thrones that are on fire. You read this and you would think, okay, what does any of that have to do with my life? I'll just tell you, it has everything to do with your lives. Because you see what the book of Daniel is? It's a manifesto. It's a proclamation. It's a 12-chapter public service announcement that the universe and everything in it belongs to God. It reveals that God has a plan for history which will culminate in a global sovereign kingdom of the Messiah on this very planet. That is the book of Daniel. And you see what that does for us is it gives us staggering holiness and hope and courage and perseverance. And I'm just going to level with you this morning. What you are about to hear is not going to be easy. It's, it's going to be baffling. It's going to be bizarre. It's going to be literally a visit to another dimension. And yet it would be a mistake to think that the visit to the twilight zone would have no significance to your lives because I'll just have you know, it is profoundly significant. It has life-changing, incredible life-changing potential for your lives. I mean, even if Daniel chapter two doesn't say one word about your particular struggles directly, it will nevertheless provide the theological infrastructure you need to handle anything in your lives. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text, if you've got notes, you'll see this. This morning, I want you to see from our text three theological convictions. Three theological convictions about God that produce holiness, hope, courage, and perseverance. That's where we're going. Three theological convictions about God that produce holiness, hope, courage, and perseverance as Christians in a culture of hostility. And and yet, before we see even one of those convictions, let's revisit the scene, shall we? Because this scene has it all. Drama and suspense and danger. It's all there. Let's review quickly what we saw last week. Last week, we began first with the dream and the crazy demand. The dream and the crazy demand. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar is literally sitting on top of the world, reveling in his fame as the most powerful man in the ancient Near East, savoring the glory as being the heavyweight champion of the ancient Near East, and all of a sudden we see in verse 1 that God begins to stir. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And it's not just a dream, more like a nightmare, and yet the twist is it's a nightmare with a message. But you see, Nebuchadnezzar has no idea what it means. He just knows he has got to get to the bottom of this thing, and so what does he do? He calls himself a staff meeting. And at the staff meeting, he calls his dream teams of wizards and magicians and psychics, those who supposedly had contact with the spirit world. And as we saw last week, Nebuchadnezzar, what he did is he changed the rules, didn't he? 
Normally in these situations, he would reveal the dream. They would hear the dream, write it down, go to the library, check out the books, interpret the dream, come back with an interpretation that would tickle the fancy of the king. They get an attaboy and a pay raise and all is well in the kingdom. Not today. Today it's going to be a little different. Nebuchadnezzar changes protocol in verses 5 and 6, he tells them that for this particular job, he wasn't going to tell them the dream. No, no, they were going to tell him the dream that he had inside his head first. Then they were going to give him the interpretation. That's the situation. With their magical powers, they were going to have to somehow see the dream that he had and then tell him what the dream means. The problem is, that's crazy. That's crazy. No one can see, thankfully, the dreams that anyone else has inside their heads, and yet that's what he, that was his assignment to them. And so, the, the, and, and you see, the reason why he did it this way, the reason why he laid upon them this impossible demand is because of fear. It's because of fear. You see, whatever this thing was he saw in his dream rocked him to his very core, and so he had to get to the bottom of this thing. And you see, the only guarantee that they had the interpretation right was if they could tell him the dream he had inside his head first, because if they could do that, then he could be sure that their interpretation was accurate. So their assignment, although unusual, is very simple. Tell me the dream I had inside my head first and its interpretation, and if you do, you get a pay raise. Failure to do so, verse 5, you're going to have your body parts ripped off and literally in the Aramaic have your houses turned into a public sewer. Eternal glory, excruciating death, those are your choices. And again, you remember, they, they can't do it. They literally fall over themselves trying to reason with the king. They've got nothing in the hopper. And so Nebuchadnezzar, verse 12, blows his top, goes ballistic, and issues a command that every single wise man, sage, prophet, conjurer, and fortune teller in his entire kingdom was to be executed, which includes, as you know, Daniel and his comrades. Which brings us next to the danger in intervention of God. The danger in intervention of God. Daniel gets wind of the execution. He hears about the search warrant to scour the kingdom looking for the wise men and, and, and slaughter them. And so what does Daniel do? Daniel and his comrades, they get together and they have a prayer meeting that, to plead with God for his mercy to intervene, reveal the dream, and save hundreds of lives. And although not technically obligated to do so, that's exactly what God does. Verse 19, God downloads the dream into Daniel's brain, which just happened to be a prophecy, a prophetic message about how the world is going to end. And in verse 20 through 22, Daniel volcanically erupts into one of the most thrilling theological prayers found in the entirety of Scripture, and it is worth our time to read it again. Look at verses 20 through 22. Daniel, in response to this, answers and, and said, let the name of God be blessed. Literally, from eternity and until eternity. Why? Because the wisdom and the power belongs to him. He is the one who changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and insight to those who have knowledge. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and illumination dwells with him. Did you see it? 
Did you see what he said about God there? God is wise. God is powerful. God is sovereign. God knows everything. In other words, God is the most interesting, admirable, fascinating, glorious, trustworthy person in the universe. Don't you see everything that God is? Hear me now. Everything that God is is everything you were created to need and enjoy forever. The meaning of our lives is literally to be astonished by this God through his son. Never, ever, ever let the tyranny of the urgent crowd out for you the most important activity of your lives, which is to delight, to supremely enjoy and delight in this God through his word. Daniel understood that. And yet with no time to lose, Daniel rushes to the palace of the king, which brings us to the interrogation and confession. This is still review from last week. The interrogation and confession, verses 24 through 30. Daniel, without knocking, rushes into the executioner's office, announces that he has both the dream and the interpretation. He's then promptly rushed into the oval office of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, who gets right down to business, verse 26. He says, are you able to make known to me the dream which I saw and its interpretation? I love Daniel's gutsy reply here. Actually, no, I can't. No one can. In fact, uh, no one on the face of the planet can do what the king is asking. Wizards, wise men, sorcerers, fortune tellers with their crystal balls and hocus pocus magic tricks do not have the ability to meet the demand of the king. But I want you to notice what Daniel does here. Daniel could have seized this as a shameless opportunity for self-promotion. Instead of that, seizes an opportunity to display the preeminence, the supremacy of God. Look at verse 28. No, no, I can't do, no one could do what the king is asking. But there is a God. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall happen in the end of days. Your dream and the visions of your head on your bed are this. Do, do you see the way he talks about God here? Itai Allah Bishmaya. There is a God in heaven. There is a God in Babylon. There is a God in the DFW. There is a God in your neighborhoods. There is a God in your homes. There is a God in your lives. God is not some chiseled action figure propped up in a temple somewhere. No, he is the reigning and ruling and majestic God who has absolute supremacy over everything. He alone, O king, is able to do what the king is asking. And did you notice what Daniel said about the dream? Look at the text, verse 28. He said, God has made known to the king what shall happen in the end of days. That would have jolted Nebuchadnezzar just like a taser. 
You see, this would have confirmed exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had suspected all along, namely that this dream wasn't the normal, garbled, bizarre cocktail of mangled memories. No, this dream was a message. It was a message to be proclaimed. It was a warning to be heeded. This dream was a prophecy from God, a sneak preview, a theological trailer to how the world was going to end. In other words, it was a visit to the twilight zone. So with a captive audience of one, Nebuchadnezzar on the edge of his seat, Daniel unfolds the dream, which brings us now to the revelation and the interpretation. The revelation and the interpretation, verses 31 through 45. Daniel here now does two things. Verses 31 through 36, he recounts the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in his head two nights before this. And then 37 through 45, he tells him exactly what it means. Let's begin with the dream. Look at verse 31. You, O king, were looking and behold, a single great statue. The statue was great. Its splendor was magnificent standing before you, and its appearance was terrifying. Notice the word behold there in the text. I realize that sounds a bit archaic and Shakespearean, but you see what that is is a term that denotes surprise or shock or something scary, and in this case, it's all three. You see, what the king saw that filled him with terror was this massive, towering statue like a skyscraper looming ahead. Imagine a time when you stood at the base of a skyscraper peering up at this thing before you. That's what this looked like. And this thing, you could tell it was intimidating and gargantuan. It was monstrous and terrifying. And unlike the Statue of Liberty, which is only made out of copper, this statue is made of five different elements. Look at the text. Verse 32, the head is made of gold. The chest and the arms are made of silver. The stomach and the thighs are made of bronze. Verse 33, the legs are made of iron. And last of all, the feet and the toes are made of iron and clay mixed together. And immediately you get the sense that something is not right about this statue. Architects feel very uncomfortable reading this text because of the statue's faulty construction. You see, the statue is inherently top-heavy. The feet are not designed to support the weight of the statue. The feet and the toes are made of iron mixed with clay, and, and that, that doesn't work. Those two things do not mix together. So whatever this statue and the elements out of which it's made represent, it's inherently unstable. But then verses 34 and 35, we get to the pinnacle of the dream. And you know that moment in, in dreams where you're falling and, and then you wake up just before you hit the ground? That's kind of what this is. Look at the text. You were looking until a stone which was not cut out with human hands appeared. And it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and it crushed them. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the threshing floor of summer and the wind blew them away and there was no trace found of them. Notice this. And the stone which struck the statue became a great mountain and filled all of the earth. That right there, that's the point of the dream. 
This is what freaked Nebuchadnezzar out so much, namely whatever the stone is, because you notice the stone was massive and it was not cut out with human hands. What does that mean? It means it was so sharp and cut so precisely, it looked as if it had been shaped by a laser. It looked like aliens made it. Because here's the thing, if, if it wasn't made by human hands, then whose hands was it made by? This thing is made by God. And whether you like it or not, most things in your home, somewhere on it say, made in China. But if this stone had a copyright imprint on it somewhere, it would definitely say, made in heaven. This is a divinely made, heavenly issued, made by a craftsman from another world. And so with the precision of a laser cut diamond, this stone the size of a football stadium all of a sudden just appears and apparently hurtling across the sky like a ballistic missile, it crushes the statue on the feet and notice what happens. Verse 34, the stone crushed the statue on the feet of iron and clay or it struck them, it struck the statue and it crushed the feet. That word crushed in Aramaic literally means to crush something into powder and insignificance. Because notice verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the copper, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the threshing floor of summer. Not just the feet, but the whole thing imploded on impact. Like a demolition crew blowing up a skyscraper, this monstrosity tumbles to the ground like an avalanche. All that's left over when the smoke clears, all that's left over is just a pile of chaff, an unusable pile of ash that blows away in the wind into obscurity, into insignificance. So that means whatever this stone is supposed to represent, its arrival to the planet will be catastrophic and it will be glorious. Because look at the end of verse 35. And the stone which struck the statue became a great mountain and filled all of the earth. What a bizarre image, isn't it? I mean, this giant laser-cut stone immediately upon impact becomes a mountain, and not just a mountain, but a great mountain. And Daniel describes that it begins to grow and it begins to spread and it begins to multiply until every single square inch of the planet is covered with its glory. That would be like the Himalayas or the Swiss Alps spreading like a virus over all the earth until all the earth was filled with the glory of the Himalayas or the glory of the Swiss Alps. That's what this is. And, and, and here's what's really interesting. What, what is super which you can't see in English, but it's super obvious in Aramaic because there, there's this play on words between chaff and between mountain. You see, the statue becomes chaff, the rock becomes a mountain, and in Aramaic, those two words sound almost exactly alike. In fact, they rhyme. Chaff is ur, mountain is tur. Ur, chaff, tur, Mountain. What's the point of that? The point of it, it's, it's a play on words. It's, a, it's for dramatic effect. It, it's, it's filled with irony. You see, what seems so significant at first, namely the statue, disappears into insignificance. 
And whatever the stone turned mountain is becomes the most significant reality in the universe. This is crazy, right? This is crazy. This, this is apocalyptic literature. This is God cracking the space-time continuum and letting you get a crack inside. This is God revealing the twilight zone of his plan for history. And believe it or not, whatever this psychedelic dream means, it has unbelievable relevance for your lives. In fact, I would say that this dream, and in particular the stone which becomes a mountain, is in fact the very foundation, the very cause, the very wellspring of all the stability and security in your lives for which you crave. You know why? I'll spoil the ending. I'll ruin the surprise. The stone that becomes a global mountain is a mind-altering preview to the future global kingdom of Jesus Christ that's going to happen right on this planet. This is a picture of your future home. This is a picture of how the world is going to end. This is the happily ever after of your life already written. And what that does is give us holiness and hope and courage and perseverance. And I don't know what Nebuchadnezzar is thinking here. I don't know what he's thinking, but likely his mouth is hanging open in disbelief as he hears his dream recounted to him with perfect precision. And the dream that he had in his head two nights before this, by the way, I mean, this is exactly what the shamans of, of Babylon they, they couldn't do, which means, again, God is making a name for himself in Babylon. God is making the compelling case to him to the Babylonians, and to you, that God is absolutely sufficient for every tangled dilemma of your life and in your soul. You see, what God is revealing here is that He alone knows the future, He alone reveals the future, and He alone controls the future. See, my question for you is, can you think of any area in your life to which that does not apply? Can you think of any area in your life to which God's knowledge of, revealing of, and control of the future, can you think of anything in your life that that does not apply to? Think about it. Loneliness, singleness, sickness, holiness, or happiness. Is there any issue over which God's sovereign control over your lives does not have shocking and haunting relevance? This is what I mean when I say that prophecy is not just a topic that tickles the imagination. Rather, it is a means of survival. God reveals the future precisely to give us holiness and hope and courage and perseverance. But you remember here, the job is half done. The job is half done here. The job was to not only recount the dream, but also to give the interpretation, which is precisely what Daniel does. The moment we've all been waiting for, verses 37 through 45, Daniel reveals the dream, and it is literally going to blow your minds. Just like the dream, the interpretation breaks down into five parts. Part one, the head of gold. Part one is the head of gold. So here's, here's Nebuchadnezzar, nervous Nebuchadnezzar, dying to know the interpretation of this, of this dream, the meaning of the nightmare, and as promised, Daniel delivers. Look at verses 37 and 38. 
You, O King, are the King of kings, who the God of heaven has given to you the kingdom, the might, the strength, and the majesty. And among all those who dwell on the earth, the sons of man, the beast of the field, the birds of the heaven, God gave them into your hand, and he made you ruler over all of them. You are the head of gold. Did you see that batting leadoff? It's Nebuchadnezzar himself. He himself is the head of gold. See, he knew it. He just knew. He just knew that somehow, some way, the dream pertained to him. And here's the question. How does the dream pertain to him exactly? There are two ways. Two ways the dream pertains to him. First, look at verse 37. He says, you, O king, very, find this very interesting. You are the king of kings, who the God of heaven has given to you the kingdom, the strength, and the might, and the glory. Do you see that? What a, what a blow to a narcissistic king like Nebuchadnezzar. You see, the dream, get this now, the dream in part was to be a wake-up call to Nebuchadnezzar that every single ounce of power that he had, every victory he had won, every palace that he owned was only because the God of heaven gave it to him. Nebuchadnezzar, all your power and all your majesty and all your victories, you didn't earn that. You didn't work for that. God gave those things to you. Those are on loan to you from the God of heaven who governs everything that comes to pass. And notice he calls him the king of kings. You know what that is? That's theological mockery right there. I mean, to be sure, Nebuchadnezzar looked powerful and imposing from a distance, but all he was was a cheap and temporary imitation of the real king of kings who will come and rule all history at the end of the age. You see, with all of his pomp and flamboyance and his machismo, Nebuchadnezzar was nothing more than a bratty trust fund kid who had everything handed to him by the God who rules human history. And just to add insult to injury, look at verse 38. King, by the way, the people that you rule, the beasts that you rule, the birds of the heaven that you rule, you only rule them because God made you ruler over them. That is it. That is who you are. You are the head of gold. I, I think there's a lesson for us here, isn't there? There's a profound lesson here in remembering that all we are at the end of the day is nothing more than undeserving recipients of sovereign grace. You see, in Christ, we are like Nebuchadnezzar a thousand times over. In Christ, we are all heads of gold. <laughs> meaning what? Meaning we are kings and queens of the living God, meaning everything has been given to us by the sovereign generosity of the living God. In Christ, we are proud owners of eternal salvation, which was predestined by the Father. It was purchased by the Son, and it is preserved by the Holy Spirit to God be the glory, which means had God not intervened and awakened us by sovereign grace, we would have never believed and been saved. Which brings us to part two. Part two, the arms and chest of silver. 
the arms and chest of silver. Because you see, here's the thing. This dream wasn't only a message to Nebuchadnezzar that God gave him his kingdom. It was also a message that God was going to remove his kingdom. Look at verse 39. After you, another kingdom shall arise. Ironically, he says, inferior to you. What an insult. What an insult. There's a kingdom that's going to come that's going to conquer you, and ironically, it's going to be inferior to you. But, but again, don't, don't miss this. After. After you, a kingdom shall arise. Which means what? It means this entire dream is a revelation of God's plan for the future. God is revealing what kingdoms would emerge onto the scene of history hundreds of years before they ever even showed up to the planet. And get this, the arms and chest of silver is a picture of the very next kingdom who would come and conquer Babylon and take center stage on the place of human history. Do you feel this? This is prophecy. This is predicting. And guess what? We know exactly who this is. Every history book on the planet confirms that the kingdom to rise up and conquer and overthrow Babylon was known as the Medo-Persian Empire. I mean, do you realize what's happening here? God is tipping his cards to Nebuchadnezzar and revealing in order, by the way, the kings that would rule the roost in human history. Because you see, God is the one in charge, not politicians. God is the one who calls the shots, not kings on their thrones. And the Persians, in just 63 years from this very moment, they were going to invade Babylon, kill the king, and take over the entire operation. In fact, chapter 5 records the fulfillment of this very thing. And the Persian Empire, which is Iran today, by the way, lasted for over 200 years. They stretched all the way from Egypt, all the way to India, even up into Russia. That's five million miles, square miles of absolute domination. That they, they looked absolutely invincible to the rest of the world. That is until someone came along and they had bigger guns. Which brings us to part three, the stomach and the thighs of bronze. The stomach and the thighs of bronze. Again, what this is, is a picture of a kingdom. It's a picture of a kingdom that's going to come in the future from Daniel's perspective. Verse 39, notice the detail. He says, this kingdom, get this, shall rule over all of the earth. Again, if we can look at history and know that Persia conquered Babylon, we could look at history and we could know who it is who conquers Persia. And we know exactly who that is, don't we? It is none other than the kingdom of Greece. Think about it. The year that Daniel is speaking here is 602 BC. Greece conquered Persia in 334 BC. This is 268 years beforehand predicting the rise of the empire of Greece. There's no way. There's no way that Daniel could know this. Unless, of course, God prophetically revealed it to him, which, of course, he did. And under the insatiable rule of Alexander the Great, who was talked about in chapter 8, by the way, Greece conquered Spain, France, 
North Africa, the entire Middle East, even into India, and, and, and even up into Russia. And legend has it that he, his army killed so quickly and so ferociously that when it, when it was all over, Alexander wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. This is the prophetic twilight zone. This is, this is God revealing what's going to come in the future. And here's the thing. The fact that history, the, the fact that history has transpired exactly as this chapter has described reveals to us that the book of our faith, the book that you're holding in your hands, is not some irrelevant document cooked up by overactive imaginations merely to make us moral people. Rather, it is the revelation of the living God. Put it this way. The book in your hands is the greatest evidence that God is real, and that he is there, and his promises are true, and he controls all of history. But there's a fourth kingdom described, which means from Daniel's uh, perspective, we are going even further into the future. That brings us to part four, the feet of iron and clay. The feet of iron and clay. Again, again, compute. Each part of the statue represents a different kingdom that's going to arise in the future from Daniel's perspective. And the fourth kingdom is the legs and feet of iron and clay. And again, newsflash, if we know that Persia conquered Babylon and we know that Greece conquered Persia, we know exactly who it is who's going to conquer Greece, don't we? We know exactly who it is, and it is none other than the Roman Empire itself, the very world power in existence, in power when Christ was born, by the way. Rome is the feet of iron and clay. By 146 BC, Rome had superseded Greece as the heavyweight champion of the ancient world. Rome stormed onto the scene and absolutely obliterated everything in its path. Fierce in appearance, unparalleled in power, insatiable in appetite. Nations were easily crushed under the iron boot of the Roman legions, and it wasn't until 1453 A.D., by the way, that the last Roman emperor was killed, which means you have 1,600 years of rule and domination, which makes them the most lethal predator in human history. And no wonder, no wonder chapter 7 calls Rome a monster with metal teeth. No wonder verse 40 says this. Look at the text. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong like iron. Because iron crushes and pulverizes all things. And like iron which shatters all of these things, it shall crush and it will shatter. There it is, absolute lethal killing machine predicted centuries before they ever even showed up to the party. But again, you remember, you remember the statue is structurally compromised, right? Oil and water don't mix, neither do iron and clay. You see, Rome was an absolute beast, but in some ways they were like a wounded monster. It had massive strength, but also, also disturbing weakness. Verse 41 says that it would be a divided kingdom. Verse 42 says that part of the kingdom would be strong and part of it would be brittle. There would be, it would be an internally and structurally compromised kingdom. But just here's the thing. The 
issue that makes visits to the Twilight Zone so thrilling and so perplexing all at the same time is this. You see, what I'm about to say is going to be very demanding on you. It's going to require everything you've got this morning. I'm not even kidding. Because you see, apocalyptic literature, which is what we're looking at, it is inherently designed to be a puzzle, a kind of where's Waldo cross word puzzle, word search, Rubik's Cube, all at the same time. In other words, in other words, get this now, there are clues in the text and in the whole book and in the book of Revelation that indicates that this fourth kingdom, listen carefully, is not just Rome, but that it's simultaneously a picture of a kingdom still to come in the future. In other words, it's both Rome and a future version of Rome that will be destroyed by Jesus Christ at the end of the age. In other words, what we're talking about here is eschatology. What we're talking about are things to come in the future, things that still haven't even happened yet. And there are three clues, three clues that this fourth kingdom is actually giving us a glimpse of a future global kingdom to be destroyed by Jesus Christ. Three clues that this fourth kingdom is both Rome and a picture of something to come in the future. You ready? Clue number one. Clue number one. Chapter seven describes this very kingdom, get this now, as a beast with ten horns. Chapter seven describes the exact same kingdom as a beast with ten horns. And chapter seven, verse 24, tells us that the ten horns represent ten kings. In other words, this kingdom is comprised of ten kings who rule it together in a united confederation and united coalition, which is very interesting to me because the feet of the statue also has ten what? Ten toes, ten toes, ten horns, ten kings. It all connects. The problem is the Roman Empire was never ruled by a confederation of ten kings. That was never a part of their thing. The details don't match up here. And so I think for that very reason, it's suggesting the possibility that whatever this is, is a picture of something still to come in the future. Clue number two. Clue number two, that this still lies in the future. Daniel 7, and here's the key, Revelation 17 portray these ten kings in an alliance with a maniacal monster king tyrant affectionately called in Revelation chapter 13, called the beast, who, who rules the world, who blasphemes God and murders anyone who does not bow down to him. And the name by which this beast is called is the man of lawlessness, a.k.a. the Antichrist. Clue number three. Clue number three that this points us, suggests something to come in the future. Clue number three, chapter seven and Revelation both portray this kingdom ruled by ten kings joined in an alliance with this hideous beast are directly destroyed and demolished by Jesus Christ when he returns at the end of the age to establish his kingdom. Which is exactly what chapter two displays. Look at verse 44. Daniel 2 44, uh, verse 44. In the days of those kings, 
The God of heaven shall establish a kingdom which is literally for the ages, which is forever. It shall not be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall destroy and it shall annihilate all of these kingdoms, but it shall endure forever. There it is. There it is. There it is. Your future home and the finish line of all human history right there in verse 44. God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar and what Daniel is revealing to you how the world is going to end and how it's going to end is with a kingdom. Three observations of this kingdom. Listen very carefully. First, you notice that this kingdom is appointed by God. Look at verse 44 again. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven shall raise up a kingdom. God shall raise up a kingdom. This is the long-awaited kingdom of God. This is God's kingdom, which means it is invincible. It is unshakable. Second, you notice that the kingdom to come is also eternal. It's also eternal. Look again at verse 44. The God of heaven shall raise up a kingdom which is forever. It shall not be destroyed. Chapter 7, verse 14 says the exact same thing. Think about it. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Even America is not built to last. But this kingdom is... This kingdom is the kingdom coming to a planet near you will be forever. It is an everlasting kingdom. And then number three, you notice that the kingdom to come belongs to Israel. Us too, but to Israel. Look at verse 44. In the days of those kings... The God of heaven shall raise up a kingdom which shall be forever. It shall not be destroyed. Here it is. And the kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall not be left to another people. People, which, which people? To whom, what people would be given this kingdom? And in that day, everyone in Christ's day, everyone in the Apostles' day, and most of the guys in the early church fathers, by the way, they would have had no question as to whom this referred. This was none other than the nation of Israel. The kingdom is for Israel. Not just for Israel, us too, that's clear. But in particular to Israel. I mean, we've been talking about nations this whole time, right? Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome... But God had been promising for centuries that the nation of Israel one day would have a kingdom. One day the Messiah would arrive onto the scene of human history and establish his throne and rule the universe from a throne in Jerusalem. And if you don't believe me, listen to Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Listen very carefully. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh. When I shall raise up for David, here it is, a righteous branch. Who is that? That's the Messiah. And he shall reign as king. And he shall act wisely. And he shall do justice and righteousness in the land. Which land? 
In his days, verse 6, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called Yahweh Tzidkenu. Yahweh is our righteousness. Think about it. In a dream to Nebuchadnezzar, what has God revealed? Only his plan for history and how the world is going to end and how it's going to end is with a kingdom. The stone that blows up the rival kingdoms like a heat-seeking missile is none other than the global kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is your future home. This is how it's all going down in the end. And knowing that gives us unbelievable holiness and hope and courage and perseverance. And no doubt with a note of triumph in his voice, Daniel brings home the implications of what he just heard to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 45. The God of heaven, O king, has made known to the king what shall happen at the end or or at the after this, at the end of days. The dream is true and the interpretation is reliable. That's all Nebuchadnezzar wanted. That's exactly what he got. So what happens? How does he respond? After having his dream recounted to him, perfect precision, he does the only thing that made sense to do, namely, verse 46, he falls on his face and in his pagan superstitious passion and zeal essentially worships Daniel as a god. I mean, think about it. In just a few short days, Nebuchadnezzar had hit every single emotional extreme, the, the deepest of terror, the hottest of anger, the highest of exhilaration, And and I love the irony of the fact that the most powerful man in the world is bowing down to a nobody, a little Jewish peasant that he kidnapped out of Jerusalem. See, God was making a name for himself in Babylon. And I think Nebuchadnezzar could see that. In fact, I know he could because of what comes out of his mouth in verse 47. Look at the text. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely I know that your God is the God of gods, and he is the Lord of kings. He reveals mysteries because you were able to reveal this mystery to me. Finally, something out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth that we can actually agree with, namely theology that gives God the glory. And so as promised, I give you three theological convictions about God that produce holiness and hope and courage and perseverance. And every single one of them comes from Nebuchadnezzar's mouth himself, number one. Number one theological conviction, your God is the God of gods. Your God, you here in Christ community, in this room, your God is the God of gods. Is that not what Nebuchadnezzar walked away with? Your God is the God of gods. Oh, hear me, church, your God, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has eternally loved you and predestined endless riches for you in his Son. He is the God of gods, meaning what? Not that there actually are other gods, but that he himself is unrivaled and matchless and transcendent and supreme, there is no substitute and there is nothing else that satisfies the soul. Do you love this God? Do you treasure this God? 
Number two. Second theological conviction, your God is the Lord of kings. Your God is the Lord of kings and to be Lord means that he is boss. It means that he is master. It means that he is sovereign and it means, get this now, that everything else in this life other than God to which we look for ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction is no different than trusting in a rickety statue that will crumble to the ground in disappointment. Oh, how this God is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your affection. He is worthy of your allegiance. Do you trust this God? Does this God have your affection, your highest affection? Does he have your allegiance? Number three, your God alone knows the future. Your God alone reveals the future and your God alone controls the future. Isn't that what Nebuchadnezzar walked away with? The, the conviction he walked away with? I mean, I mean, God may not reveal to us which stocks are going to profit. He may not reveal to us if we can dodge the bullet of cancer or not. He may not reveal if America is even going to exist in 20 years. But what he has revealed, what you need to know, is in his word. And what's in his word is a kingdom. And that kingdom is unshakable. His plans are unchangeable. His promises are irrevocable. His love is inexhaustible. His power is invincible. His, his word is dependable. And his son is incomparable. The point is, the point is, we can walk into the future with a God like this, can't we? very uncertain and unstable and unpredictable future because this God has already written the future. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our minds are boggled. Our minds are a little exhausted. Oh Lord, apocalyptic literature is a thrill ride to be sure, Lord, and we need time to think and ponder. And I pray that these precious people would, that they would take time to think and ponder in quietness. Oh Lord, may your word not return to us empty. May it not return void. Oh Lord, I pray that you would cause your word to have unbelievable ripple effects in our lives, that your word, O oh Lord, would stagger us, that your word would have a lasting impact in our lives. I pray that we would begin to draw the implications of your sovereignty over history, that we would begin to see that none of this is theory, but this is a means of survival. O oh Lord, we all struggle. We all lack perspective. We all become emotionally tongue-tied, we all become distraught and discouraged and disheartened, O oh Lord, and I pray that this vision that you present of yourself in your word, that this would sustain us and strengthen us. I pray that your word would change us. Oh, I pray that we would be a profoundly eschatological people. People who live in the great eschatological is, meaning, O oh Lord, I pray that the realities of the future would sustain us in the present. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the book of Daniel. 
We give you thanks, O God of gods and Lord of kings. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.